Hello and welcome to Dear Gardener with me, Ben Dark. You are listening to a special interview episode, the first long-form, single-person interview that this podcast has carried. I'm talking to a fascinating gardener today who is well worth all our time. That is Nick Stewart-Smith, the author of a new book called The Thousand-Year-Old Garden, Inside the Secret Garden at Lambeth Palace. It's a book that does what the subtitle suggests, takes us into that fascinating walled world of Lambeth Palace, the Archbishop's residence on the river. And essentially it's a year in that place that so many of us have driven past, have seen from the river but never been able to enter. But with someone like Nick, it is of course so much more than that. It is the life and thoughts and philosophy of a contemplative and observant man. So there are salvias and pigs and quince, of course, but there's also William Blake and the the earthworm years of Charles Darwin, the, the, the late hits of Charles Darwin. We don't get into either of those subjects in this chat. You'll have to dig deeper for those. But we had a fantastic conversation ranging from long-tailed tits to, to Tolstoy. And we were able to explore Nick's unique gardening philosophy as it relates particularly to the glades that he created in his seven years at Lambeth Palace. So, without further ado, let's meet Nick Stewart-Smith. Lovely to talk to you. Hello. Hi, Ben. It's great to talk to you and to see you. Congratulations. This is a very big week in the world of Nick Stewart-Smith. Yeah, my, my book my book is coming out on the 15th of June, quite excitingly. And this was written over the course of a year behind the walls? It was, yeah. It started like, I used to work for the National Trust for a long time. And as part of my job there, I would write little bits and pieces for guides and all that kind of thing. But I'd never really considered myself a writer. It was really something that happened during, no, no one likes to talk about this anymore, but during the lockdowns. And we have a lot of volunteers at Lambeth Palace, there's about 20 or so, all from different backgrounds, different ages. It's hard to remember now, even just three years on, how hard all that was and how bewildering. And we didn't really know where things were going um, at all. And there was no kind of indication from um, our leadership. So, uh, so I was writing these little pieces for the volunteers. And it just really was to keep them in touch with what was happening in the garden. So just to provide a bit of, not exactly normality, but something real rather than this strange world that we were in or something they were familiar with and just something entertaining to take them into the sort of the more dream world of the garden. That's beautiful. And these were volunteers who would have been stuck at home, presumably mostly in the local community, which is fairly, fairly densely populated. Exactly that. And, and, and some were having to shield. So it was, it was really just to give them... A, a line back into into life and so also something that they loved because it, it was the garden so so that was it so gradually every week or so I'd write these little you know little vignettes almost about different things happening in the garden depending on the time of year. One of the strands that I particularly enjoyed in the book alongside the the historical discussions were the little first person accounts of I am 
in the garden on a on a sunny summer's morning or as the first leaves are starting to turn on the aces and these came directly from those those send outs it was that but what you what you read in the book is is quite a different version of that but they were very valuable notes for me to refer to so i would remember how i was feeling and maybe what i was doing because i was writing it very personally to people i knew very well and so it would have been quite cold and a bit unkind for me to have taken a you know lofty author's position of being far away from them so I think that came when when I was gathering the notes and turning it into a book some of that personal immediate feeling was still there I like that so I I wanted to keep that there I think it comes across incredibly well it doesn't translate to page as the pronouncements of an expert though you undoubtedly are very expert it comes across as a person full of full of (laughs) you know thoughts I'd like to talk a little bit more about the book mm-hmm. and some of the things that particularly stood out to me. Mm-hmm. The first was in the introduction. You're describing the the walk to work and this very early morning pulling up at the grand gates to the palace, which I know they're the ones outside the Garden Museum. Is those the gates you're That's going right, to? That's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, very grand things with gatehouses. So it's quite, quite intimidating. It's almost almost prison-like, I think, you know, there's sort of those huge towers and small windows and yeah and giving it a knock and holding your breath with anticipation trepidation i don't know what <laughs> but what a, what a wonderful way to start work after six years still with that during feeling i think that moment of anticipation the heart slightly beating a little faster the pulse slightly racing sometimes i feel that even going into a, a garden space is totally unknown to me you feel that something something is going to happen. And I think with all the places I've worked, I've, I have, have felt that really, that uh, I've got to hold my breath here and I've got to, I've got to get ready to, to do the transition in, into this, this green world that's beyond. That relates to something that you mentioned in the book, which is your particular way that you like to visit a garden, which is sans map. It's a, was that a bad thing to say? No, not at yeah. all. I'm just fascinated by the idea of things, just, and I think in a garden sense, of things not really ever coming to a conclusion. So that I think maps and a very formal layout and very strict rules, like you know, sort of the Humphrey Repton Red Books or something, where everything is prescribed and the gardener has very little room for, for movement or for expression. It was that reason. So the idea was I, I don't tend to get maps when I come into a garden. I just would rather just see where the path takes me. And then I'm, I'm quite happy to find out when I get home. I would try and get a map on the way out. I'm quite happy to find out either things I didn't see, because then it's always maybe maybe tomorrow, or maybe maybe next time I'll be there. Maybe I never will. I just I just have to imagine what that, you know, rockery garden that's described that I somehow completely missed. I just have to imagine what that's like. I suppose it's that really, and just that nothing ever ends. Nothing ever comes to a conclusion. I think, I think as gardeners, it's that something that that we are, we are particularly involved with because often in a historical garden like where, where I've been working, you're just a very, very small link in a very long chain. And so you, you have to think of the other gardeners that have been before you and the gardeners that will come after you. So nothing ever comes to an end. It's just, it's just a continuum. I think it's sort of true of nature. We tend to think of nature as having a cycle you know, that we think of as a beginning, a middle and an end. But it, it isn't. It just 
reinvents and reorganizes and nothing nothing ever comes to a conclusion things drop down and then they live again i completely agree i particularly enjoy your description of you as a link in the chain of gardeners and that there will be those who come after you and that's something that i thought came through very well in the book i i related it to and i'm not sure this was intentional but, but it probably was to your early descriptions of nomadic plant communities. They come, they go, they spring up, they disappear. And I was thinking that as you described the various features that you were putting in place, the grass cross and when you were uh, putting in place the glades mm. and that these are your replacements to barley fields that would have been there earlier to stew ponds to earlier features and they will in time probably be washed away and become links vanished beneath the soil of the next garden after them which i thought was quite a a lovely way to think of your work and it kind of i suppose gets rid of a bit of that perfectionist anxiety because you know this this isn't forever i think um uh, I, I can't say how it feels to hear someone describe it as you just did. You're so exact. It was wonderful to hear that. Um, but sorry, I've forgotten what the question was. Sorry, there wasn't really a question. I was I was talking about the the long links, the people who've gone before and gone after, and how your your work is is one of those links. But also, that must have been reassuring in the complete confused early days of the pandemic to yourself and to those volunteers when everything had changed to know that this was a place of continual change. It, it's exactly that. I think some people do feel uncomfortable with the idea of, of that, that the, the garden is always verging on taking control of things. But as the longer I've been in gardening, the more I've been attracted to that idea that the garden has a strong voice in things. And it's not an ego thing for a garden or the garden team to impose their particular vision for their particular era on it. It's all fluid and it's all all in movement which might sound a, a complicated thing to be able to do but it, it it really isn't it's a question of allowing the garden to speak and allowing its voice to be heard the thing you mentioned about the nomadic wanderers of let's say annual plants like poppies or larkspur that you you think well those weren't in my plans but actually you know what that was a good idea and so you think all right red poppies it is purple poppies it is opium poppies whatever the garden's had its say because it's found the seeds in the compost or round and about wherever they were on somebody's boots or wherever and it's decided to go with them and so not that a garden can decide but it's this it's this constant back and forth that becomes a dialogue and that's such a um it's a very satisfying way to work because you're not continually at war with the garden or battling it to do things that it, that the garden is never going to do. I quite I quite agree. And also you're freed from a certain tyranny that comes with having a standout display, i.e. this is where we have the summer display of mm. X, Y and Z. And then some years it's not going to be quite as good and some years it's going to disappoint. But with that sort of edited working with nature and the garden you don't have those same disappointments the set piece didn't work because the whole garden is is the piece in a way that, that's it exactly and you you're forever balancing rebalancing balancing listening observing maybe a bit of intervention and maybe you've had an idea or seen something that you think i have to grow that i mean 
there isn't any gardener who doesn't have to grow certain things that they see, you know, on a travel somewhere or in another garden. And then the garden accepts that. It's okay. Okay. If that's what you want. And so over years, say if you're in a garden for 10 years, that's a, it's a beautiful thing to, to have, to have that back and forth and to feel that you are on terms because it can take a while, a year, two years, three years. And eventually you reach this point where you, the relationship is grounded and the sort of a general sort of, it's, it's not a complacent thing, but it's a general contentment and happiness. I do think gardens are about enjoyment and happiness and freedom. I prefer to work with that than, as you said, with nature rather than fighting. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful way to work. The book is obviously set at the heart of the Church of England in the Archbishop of Canterbury's London residence. Mm-hmm. But it isn't a religious book in any sense. But I think there is something of the contemplative aspect that comes with religion. It, it is a book that is full of thought and consideration. And I wondered if that had always been a part of your working life, these moments where you find yourself in reverie and you have to shake yourself and get back to the tool shed or whatever has that always been a part of your working life or is that something that the the gardens at lambeth palace gave to you i think it's always been a part of my working life the, the most time i spent in a garden as a as, as a head garden was at overbeck's which is a national trust garden on the south devon coast if people are probably already imagining it who don't know it we're imagining places with very neat lawns and and proper, you know, dahlia displays and nicely pruned roses. There are a few of those things there, but it's it's kind of an eccentric place. And um, it's very much not on brand with the National Trust, which did cause a lot of discomfort with some people in the National Trust. So my brief there was always just do, do things that people have never seen before and do them in ways that people have never seen them before. So that was a great brief to have. Quite difficult, if you think about it. You, you always got to be on your toes trying to think, oh, uh, well, no, that's how it's usually done. So, and then try and try and think of something else. But I was in awe of the place. It's it's up on a cliff top. They're sort of chiselled out into this cliff, and then you're looking out over the sea and, and the Sulcum estuary. That's every day, and it's just um, you just feel like a, t- a very very small thing, surrounded by this absolutely astonishing world of nature. And I was always more myself if I could step back and feel that way rather than maybe just seeing it as a resource that was, that was part of my work and that I had to order in a particular way. I have a lot of time for that as well, that, that kind of gardening. But yeah, that, I think we all have to be ourselves if we can in in, in the place where, because often we're in them for a long time, I think, I mean, many years. I think it's quite important to be yourself in it if you, if you can. I, I completely, I completely agree. And Overbex is, that's an arts crafts, garden so it's it's slightly weirder than that it's around about that era but it's it's a subtropical garden so there's bananas and palm trees all that sort of devon amazingness and just also where the rock because you're on a cliff side so there's lots of rock and rock faces there which is is kind of exciting thing to have as, as a background for a garden but it's i wouldn't say it's so much arts and crafts it's just strange and it's it's one of those gardens that becomes a real favorite with people the Figures of people revisiting is very high. Christopher Lloyd used to describe it to other National Trust gardeners as, as his favourite National Trust garden. Wow, under your under your tenure. 
just yeah, but also in the, with the gardener before me, he was a very talented gardener, Tony Murdoch, who Chris Lloyd probably would, would have known better than me. But my work was partly inspired by what, what Tony had done before me. It's that chain again, just a link in it. That's something I really liked about your book was that the gardeners are at the foreground. The Mm. example particularly when you you talk about some people might know the incredibly famous fig at mm. Lamp Palace that arrives in the the middle of the 16th century but in your account of it you you briefly mention that it arrived in the entourage of of Cardinal Pole who's obviously this world famous historical figure at the heart of the counter reformation and Henry VIII and Mary I and all of that but your imaginative flight is imagining the gardener unpacking the retinue and this little rooted cutting that might be alive or might not that's come from his gift from the Vatican which I'm sure would have included a million other bits and trinkets and gizmos and that's what you run with it was gardener's perspective all the way through I think that's the most truthful perspective I can give because that, that's the one that I I am closest to it also it's not how often is it given that perspective as you say it's always told from the point of view of the people who who own the place or run the place so I just I just wanted to give that point of view and in the end it was the gardener's skill that kept the plant going and so that that lovely fig is still going strong today um over 450 years later that's quite amazing and you know probably one of the most amazing fig trees in the world could you so, just describe it to me for a little bit uh, yeah it's it's about, I suppose, about, I'm trying to think, of, I'm really bad with heights. It's about the height of a three-storey building. And the width is, like, I don't know, at least 40 metres or something like that. It's actually sort of three trees fused into one, it would appear. And it's really vigorous. It's a it's a Vicus Caraca white Marseille. Um, so Which is delicious. Very really delicious. nice, but but probably not as not the one that a lot of people are familiar with, you know, in Spain or Italy or Greece uh, or in England, something like brown turkey, which we, we tend to grow here, which is maybe a bit sweet. I think it is a delicious fig, but I think maybe it does need a bit of honey or, or something with it, perhaps. Okay. But, um, but I've, I've eaten I've eaten the ones from that tree. From Lambeth Palace. From Lambeth Palace, because you're predecessor alice yeah. used to bring them over occasionally to the garden museum and i worked at the garden museum and they were very thin-skinned you mm. can imagine them not transporting particularly well but i found them delicious and some of your quinces as well oh <laughs> you were lucky maybe he um he saved special ones for you maybe he went to sainsbury's and no <laughs> that'd be the real thing it was it would i did quite a bit of propagating of it as well so i was sort of stepping in the footsteps of all of those all of those gardeners so that was nice so we planted three more there's a building called the great hall and we planted it on the other side of that building which is that building is from um 1600 so of a similar age to the fig so my idea was that they would i never thought that i would be allowed to do this so i was amazed that happened my idea was to plant them there so that they would eventually grow up and the two figs could speak to each other over the roof of the building. And if you were in the Great Hall, there's got these sort of, as you'd imagine, these very, very ornate leaded windows, but you'd see the green of the leaves fluttering, you know, on a summer's day when you're in, in the Great Hall at some very, very important meeting or, or conference or something. So that was my thinking, because you'd see it as soon as you came through that, that forbidding main gate, 
but I never thought they'd say that that's okay, but, but they did. And that was as part of Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee to honour her, that planting where various plants were, various trees were planted in significant gardens across across the country. What, so, a, what a gift. You mentioned briefly you didn't think they'd go for it. How much creative control did you have or was every decision passed up through the ecclesiastical hierarchy? I think I tend to be a bit quite intuitive in the way that I work. So I would I would explain things I was going to do. And uh, um, generally, they would be thought out, you know, so it might be plant a small orchard or something like that, or I'm going to grow the grass long in this area. And then I'd explain why the benefits of that and, you know, that it would make life more interesting because it's just an empty space there. But Archbishop Justin did say an interesting thing to me when I started, which he, he saw some of the work I'd done previously and he knew it was quite sort of flowing and just free. And so he said... Um, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say you can do whatever you want. The reason is if I tell you what to do, I'm just going to totally restrict your imagination and your creative impulses. But if you go too far, that's what that's when I will tell you you've gone too far. So is that okay? And I said, yep, that's fine. So 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 that that was a that was a very nice thing to hear, and I thought very sensitive and considerate of him as well i think during the seven years i was there it worked well that relationship it, it seems to have produced some beautiful new garden areas i particularly liked well i liked hearing about the extra lengths of the the lawn on the backfield and the grass church that you created <laughs> Uh, a, a temple to nature at the heart of the, the temple to god which i thought was fantastic um, yeah but, but also the glades. The glades was, was probably the thing I, I was most happy about there because this was sort of a thing I've been working on really right since Overbex and then through, I was at Chequers in between at the um, Prime Minister's country residence and I did, did the same thing there. But again, they didn't really stop me despite it being, so it was these free flowing things, often using quite colourful herbaceous perennials the kind of things that would flower later in the season so you know rudbeckias and heleniums and salvias all, all those sort of lovely things but it, the effect would be like a a wildflower meadow but not not with wildflowers so it's all very mingled and plants could sort of go where they want and self-seed where they wanted and then as a gardener or the gardening team we would intervene and say too many salvia amistad We've got to take some of that, some of those out. So I'll pop them up and put them somewhere else or, or just transplant them. So it'd be like that. So it was, it was a, in a way, it was a long road for me through different gardens, but just to, with the same idea in my mind that I was just trying to tweak and develop all, all the time. And, and the opportunity really presented itself at Lambeth because of the, um, you know, that caterpillar that attacks box. It absolutely devastated, like a very, it was a very scruffy box hedge, but it was a box hedge nevertheless, but the caterpillar devastated it. So it gave us the opportunity just to scrub it out and, and shred it and put the mulch back and, um, and then just do something completely different, which was the glades. In no time, there was all kinds of insects we hadn't seen before. The harvest of honey from the bees just doubled or trebled, and whereas the rest of London was dwindling away. I've never used chemicals. It's never 
the wildlife never has to contend with that. All the microbes, but also birds. We're getting this whole sort of communities of birds just hanging out in the garden because what they needed was there. But I remember doing a talk with, um, it's a lovely talk very early in the morning with some MPs that the RSPB had organised. And they were saying that you come down the streets around Lambeth Paris and it's just, it's desolate. You know, it's early in the morning, there's no bird sound or anything. It's just silence, you know, apart from road noise and cars and aeroplanes. And but you come through the gates and suddenly there's just this orchestra of song inside. And what had contributed to that was the approach of just not shoving the wild elements just into a corner of the garden. It so often happens. Here's our wild area. And that's where the dead logs are and the, the brambles are. But more just try and, and allow those things to thread their way through the garden so that they're not sort of confined or quarantined to just a particular zone. Not saying that's necessarily easy to do and wouldn't be everyone's cup of tea, but it's a fascinating way to work in a garden. I think that that's very, very true. And I'm going to come back to that in one second. I just wanted to touch back on your birds again, because I thought that you're very, very good a writer on birds. That's one of the things I noticed in the book. And I particularly liked your description of pruning the pleached limes in late winter, early spring, and being joined by a family of, of long-tailed tits who obviously hadn't recognised you as a person. You are melded with a tree and a ladder and your interactions with them. I thought it was wonderful. I think sometimes, you, I mean, you'll have experienced this too. Sometimes the garden, you get that where generally the wildlife, like the birds, for example, just accept you as part of the scenery. Then they realise you're not you're, you're not a threat to them. If anything, you're going to do things that might be of interest, like a bit of pleaching, which reveals the aphids where, where you've cut away the branches. It um, I, I want the other bit that I wanted to mention. I know I'm cutting you off to get my favourite bits of your book out. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's, you, nice. it's nice. The, the listeners won't have heard them yet. Uh, I loved your your talk about when you were first starting in the National Trust Garden when they said, "Okay, here we go, and here's your your cloves egg, and here's your." Cloves hook and here's your PPE and you'll find your Robin waiting for you out in the garden, which you duly did. But of course, when you have a garden full of wildlife areas, not tucked away in the corner, as you say, then there can be enough Robins for everyone to have their own Robin in the garden. But if you have just one little corner where one little Robin lives, then you've got the garden's Robin. Anyway, I love that story, so I wanted to get it in. <laughs> well, it's all true. And they would they would perch on your on your boot as you were. That all on your shoulder. It's just it's more. It's more. They like um, anybody who's had this with a robin. They know they're great coaches, and they'll they'll just be there encouraging you on. Come on, more, digging, more digging, please. more digging. More digging. What are you what are you standing around for? And so it's 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 that really. And so um, you obviously don't you want them to stay true to themselves. You don't want them to become a tame thing that's going to land on your foot or your shoulder because that's maybe not the true essence of the bird. But but it does it does happen. I've heard that they would perch like that on the back of a wild boar. And as you mentioned oh. in your book, the wild boar is, is extinct now here, but that we are the equivalent of the wild boar rumbling and rootling through the forest floor and exposing things. So maybe they just oh. think that you're a particularly upright boar. That's really interesting. Yes, that's really interesting. I didn't, hadn't thought of that. That's really good. Yeah. yeah, so they have an instinct to follow large mammals yeah. who are causing yeah. destruction in the undergrowth. Yes. What will happen in the world of needed gardening to to the robins? I suppose they just concentrate on the on the compost heap. I think so. Yeah. They're, they're, I think they they're pretty clever. They'll find a way. How are you finding now that you're a garden consultant? How are you finding 
these techniques that are and have been developed in large gardens, Lambeth Palace, for example, 10 acres, which most private people will never have the opportunity to garden. Do the, do the lessons you learnt and the things that you put in place in the glades, for example, transfer to those smaller gardens? I think so. I mean, part of it is to speak to people whose garden it is and not to impose something that then they're either going to find difficult to look after or um, just they're never really going to enjoy because it's not really them. So I'll try and find a meeting ground where I'd explain about something like the glades. You, it, it is quite possible to do that on a quite a small scale. You've maybe just got a couple of dozen plants, but you'd maybe choose six different types and then just intermingle them and, and see what see what happens there. So it is possible and you still it can still be quite a thing when fully going and not not too onerous for someone to look after. But you're right though, it is something I've I've found probably most found difficult is because I've kind of have always been used to working on the big scale and then suddenly to have to go to more micro. But it's a really interesting challenge and enjoyable too. I think one of the things that you must have to get across and it must be something you do on every visit subconsciously or consciously is to kind of install the ethos that you were talking about earlier that nomadic plant ethos because when you're working for a project like the glades i always think how wonderful for a visitor but it's more for the gardener who sees it every day who sees it from season to season who gets the thrill of saying this has appeared this has gone over there this has gone over there mm. so almost you need to coach your clients on how to see the garden as you see it alongside the the adapting your skills to their needs i think all that's true and i think another thing is that things have really moved on in the even in quite a short time like the last 10 years where people are much more in general aware of the kind of crisis that's going on around us and, and it's partly if we don't adjust our behaviors nature is going to suffer even more our gardens can be the closest contact we ever have with nature where we're interacting with it on a daily basis and both in gardening somewhere like Lambeth Palace or the National Trust that was what I was trying to to, to put across to people this contact with nature that, that was a, a positive thing not to do things that would harm it and accepting sometimes things aren't going to be the way that, that you maybe you thought they would be but but, but to enjoy that it's, it's sometimes if people have got no interest in gardens or nature it can be it can be difficult to, to put that across because they just may think I just want a lawn with stripes in it that's neatly edged up and then so I'd like some red geraniums and pots and that, that that would be it which that sounds marvelous but there's so much more really for the work I'm doing now it probably wouldn't work if I was doing something where it was it was somebody who preferred something that was more sedate and and formal so I would show them you know, images of, of the, what I did and say, you know, we can adapt this to your space if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a sensible way to play those situations. Mm. But I, one of the things I enjoyed in the book is that you have this this love for nature and the things that arrive. Mm. But you're very conscious all the way through that it is still a garden, a mm. space that has things done to it by man. And I particularly enjoyed the sections on, on scything, and you quote the, the wonderful, wonderful bit of Anna Karenina where Levins mm. has his sort of transcendental experience on the scythe. Isn't that great? Such a brilliant piece of writing. And you really do it. You do it justice. Um, those moments of, of oblivion that he encounters. 
it's just it's so powerful and so vivid and even after it must be near 200 years since he wrote that so powerful and so vivid if you use sides i think you'd recognize a lot of what he's talking about it's hard to explain but it's a, just the most amazing feeling when when i was learning to do it i was taught by somebody a brilliant forest ranger in in the national trust who was a side obsessive he would go to side conventions, probably not that far from where you are, like, but maybe over over the border in Sweden. They'd side bits of bits of ground. But so I sort of learned from him. It is all about rhythm. It's all to do with how you you move your waist and your hips and your arms and shoulders. So it's it's kind of very relaxing exercise, really, when when you when you're doing it right. And um, that's really all there is to it. it it's is it is it oblivion he mentions it's, it's some sort of sense of of being being away from himself yeah he did not, he just no longer knows where he is and it's kind of it's almost ecstatic that he's, he doesn't know how long has passed has it been a minute has it been two hours and he started off in such a bad way really because his, his brother has sort of slightly ridiculed him saying well you're never going to last all day with out there with that lot and then the workers on this state are also giving him very helpful but very extremely critical advice about how badly he's doing it. And but eventually, because his 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 tenacity and perseverance, they kind of start to work all happily together, really. It's hard work. And he doesn't, it, that's very clear in what in what Tolstoy writes. It is hard work. And I have found it hard work. And I think everybody, all the gardeners who've done this with me, have also found it hard work. We've also found really good things. And I think you end up just having a love and huge respect for it one of the best things that happened in the Lambeth Palace experience was I only got one side because I thought well <laughs> Alison Cheyenne who I work with they'll they'll probably say what is this and they, they, they wouldn't want to want to do it and you know they would, would, would be wondering about what had happened to me you know how much more of my mind that I lost and so so I just got one side. I thought, well, I'll do it, and then they have a go, and they can see what they think. So we did that, and then they were just saying, "Why didn't you get three? Why didn't you get three? They saw, you know, in a heartbeat, they saw the value of this and what what was good about it, and what was, and that that we were doing something that would have been done in that garden for a thousand years in much the same way, with the same techniques, same tools, and then just just had had a hiatus maybe of a hundred years through most of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. So it was rather an amazing thing to bring it back. Like kind of, if a gardener from 1552 suddenly appeared, you know, behind one of the oak trees to look at us, um, they'd know exactly what was going on. You know? And that's a almost unique to our profession. Well, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure I could think of a, a, a few more, but but our work would be recognisable to those who came before. You, you talk of... Uh, a boy paid for eight days of pulling up flowering plants in 1320s. And had he arrived with you at Lambeth Palace in mm. in 2020 and said, I'm here to pull the weeds, you would have been able to say, well, off you go. Yeah, it, and you're right, I think. You know, but he's already thought, oh, not this again. You know, <laughs> I just thought things had moved on by now. But it's like, um, yeah, it's true, though. I guess because it is such an ancient profession, you know, uh, particular techniques have have sort of been proven. And, um, and obviously things change, of course, they change all the time in, in our profession. But that's one of the things I've always enjoyed about being a gardener is, is, the, is, the, is the connection through time that, um, that you have. It comes um, across very clearly in the book you're talking about 
Egyptian depictions of gardeners in 1500 BC and their, their wrecking flat apart, their references there. I also enjoyed your references to art and the way that has influenced you, your Dura and your Van Gogh. I wondered if you could talk about the influences of those two particular paintings. Um, I'd be happy to. Van Gogh sort of goes a bit back to the, um, the glades we were talking about, the idea of rhythm and movement in planting that, that, and, and this, they kind of move where they want to move and and in at different times different things will be happening through planting i think that comes across in his paintings i think he's a, i think he's an amazing painter of nature and of gardens as well there's a lot of the later works are of gardens and the, the painting i particularly focused on in the book is long grass and butterflies which was painted right towards the end of his life it's in the national gallery so any, anybody in london can go you can get to London, can go and see it for free there. Um, it's just this feeling of life, and that it's life is is maybe not necessarily what we think. It's just it's just to do with energy, and movement, and, and color coming and going, light and air, all all the, all the things that, that 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 we have in a garden. But he he somehow has it on a on a flat canvas, and it's just it's just absolutely astonishing breathtaking thing did any reproduction of it just really sadly what just doesn't do any justice at all it's like it's a small painting but I, I think there are others others that were that one could i just prefer the wilder ones where you feel things are on the verge of being out of control but actually they're not they all have a, a sense and an order in their own way the other painting which i absolutely love is um, which i've talked about in the book is the great piece of turf by albrecht durer which was painted in the early 1500s. Um, and it's just a humble, simple subject. It's exactly what it says. It's a, it's a piece of turf with grasses, um, some plantains, some, I think some dandelion things that have already gone, gone um, they're, they're not sort of pretty, pretty. They're just, but it's already true. He could have done it yesterday. And it's just it's so true to the character of all of those plants. And, it's so interesting that he would have chosen that as a subject. It's a really odd subject to choose at that time. Something so, well, just weeds. You know, the, 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 people, the people who were his patrons would have thought, what are you painting weeds for? We've got those. But he, he also, another thing I love about it is he takes himself to a point of view on a level with them. So he doesn't, it's not like he's looking down on them or trying to organise them. In a way, the painting is very, very organised. But he... Um, He's almost on a level with them, which is, that's really nice. He's letting them, letting them be. And he's wants, he wants to capture this moment. I imagine it was done in, in a studio. So he must have had these various clumps of turf sitting around the studio. They're all falling over. Oh, I'll have to go onto that one. It's a really marvellous thing. And I just, but just also just the idea of it is also really marvellous. It's just this sort of um, something so humble and so unlikely but yet something that so much deserves to be celebrated. You know, without those plants, where where's anything in the world? They're so much part of the intricate fabric of, of how everything works. There's a beautiful thing he said as well um, around about this time, where he was very interested in form and, and composition as, as all, I guess, many painters were at that time. But he said, it's not up for the artist to decide what's beautiful. God will decide that. Because, okay, it's a, it's, Really interesting thought. If this clump of weeds exists on Earth, 
that's as beautiful as um, a sunset or, you know, um, I'm trying to think of something but being affecting that era. These are good things to think about. I, I wholly agree. And perhaps the great in the title uh, alludes to that. I was thinking that maybe you should take it along or a print of it to your consultant clients when they're talking about red pelagoniums and show them it's, this has worked on the greatest minds of the last 500 years. This is what we're going for. That's fantastic. I would, I'll do that. Are you, going to, are you going to charge me a royalty for that? <laughs> That's yours. Very kind. Brilliant. Well, Nick, I think that I'm going to let you get on with things there. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Ben. And also, it's lovely for me in particular, because you were the first person really outside of sort of editor, agents type people to read my book. So it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, I've enjoyed every moment of the reading and of the talking. And I think that everyone who takes the book out is going to find so much in it all the things we discussed and and much much more it really is really is a worthwhile book so well well done on that um thank congratulations you. thank you okay thank you nick thank okay. you so much bye 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 thank you again to nick for a fantastic chat the book is out today and i'm very pleased that nick has continued to write his publishers, the History Press, have a fantastically well-observed piece by him on their website, which I'll put a link to in, in the bump that comes below this podcast. I'm so pleased that Nick's tone in the book came across in our conversation. The thoughtful, discursive, imaginative, considerate man who is there on the page is, is the genuine article. Which is, which is really nice. You, you suspect when you read the book that that was the case. There doesn't seem to be artifice or a persona created. That was absolutely wonderful. Talking of a persona created, you can come and see me. <laughs> the, the persona par excellence at Selly Manor in Birmingham on Sunday the 18th of June, if you are listening to this live. And then the week after that, I'm going to be speaking at the Garden Museum's Nomadic Literary Festival, popping up like a larkspur. This year, it is germinating at Parham House, which is that wonderful Elizabethan pile with the walled garden and pleasure grounds. I'm talking there on the Saturday, which is the 24th. So do come along to that if you possibly can. As always, you can support the show on Ko-Fi, thanks to the anonymous donor this week. I do wonder if it's the same one as last week. And to Bianca, who I suspect is previous guest Bianca of the Terrace, who has supported more than enough by, by being on, and is due to come back on very soon in the next mashup episode. But, but anyway, thank you very much for that. That is enough from me. Thank you to Nick and thank you all for listening. Goodbye.